Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithfield, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Friday, February 21st, we are studying Matthew chapter 14, verses 1 through 21. After his rejection at Nazareth, Jesus hears of the death of his forerunner, John the Baptist. But even in the face of such persecution, Jesus' compassion for the crowds who follow him remains constant. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us Pastor Brian Wolfmiller. Pastor Wolfmiller is the pastor at St. Paul Lutheran Church and Jesus Death Lutheran Church in Austin, Texas. Pastor Wolfmiller, welcome to Sharper Iron. Thanks so much. Be here. Yeah, we've got a special episode for those of you who are listening in, on the radio. We are live here this morning at Faith Lutheran High School in Central Texas, located in sunny Warda, Texas, between LaGrange and Giddings. It's a part of the Writers' Roundup that's happening here. Later, Pastor Wolfmuller is participating. He's gracious enough to join me yeah, early. Oh, it's great. And a live audience here, oh, too. Man, this I know. is really something. Normally, people are not looking at me when I'm on the radio. Uh, I don't. Radio is great for introverts because you get to talk to a lot of people, but you can't see, you just see the mic. But this is different now. You got to, whoa. That's right. Yeah, and the, the crowd keeps growing. This is great. This is wonderful. Live, live audience, welcome to the radio. Thanks for being with us. If you have any questions this morning, feel free to step up. We've got a microphone set up to our left, your right, and I'll turn that volume up and you can ask us questions about the text as it comes up. So welcome again to the live audience, to everyone listening on Worldwide KFUO. Pastor Wolfmiller, get us started this morning with some context. Where are we in Matthew's gospel? What do we need to know going into the text today? Well, an interesting thing. So we're in Matthew 14, but uh, so if you were to if you were to make a, a movie out of the gospels, you would only need one camera basically for the whole thing, and it would just be on Jesus. It would follow Jesus wherever he goes. But when we get to Matthew 14, it's a it's a it's a cutaway and it's a it fades back. So it's gonna go. It's kind of gonna go back. Uh, in time, a flashback, if you will, uh, and give us the account of the death of Jesus. So um, it, it starts with the hearing of Herod about the ministry of Jesus, and then it tells us what Herod what Herod thought about that, and it and it reveals his bad conscience, and then, well, how did he have such a bad conscience? So it goes back to the death of John the Baptist, and then in a beautiful way, Matthew, halfway through our text, is going to kind of catch us right back up. So what happens when Jesus hears about the death of John. So so Herod hears about Jesus and reacts to that and why, and then Jesus hears about the death of John and reacts to that, and then we get caught back up. So it's it's really a kind of a, we're about, we're almost halfway through the gospel, chapter 14 out of 28, and so it's, now, now the topic of the death of Jesus is going to begin in earnest. And in a way, the, um, it, it's been set up already because the things that happened to John happened to Jesus, but just more intensely. So, so John is is born of Elizabeth in her old age. Jesus is born of a virgin. John comes uh, preaching and baptizing. Jesus comes preaching and baptizing with water and with the Holy Spirit. And John is is martyred, and and now Jesus, in some ways, almost knows that that's what's for him as well. So we're we're now going to enter into the last half of the gospel, which is going to s- driving us towards the cross, the suffering and death of Jesus. Mm. Let's go ahead and take a look at the text then. We're in Matthew chapter 14, beginning at the first verse. 
At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people, because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, We have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. There's the text for today, Matthew chapter 14, verses 1 through 21. Pastor Wolf Mueller, at the beginning of the text, we meet Herod the Tetrarch. And, and I, I kind of lose track of all these Herods yeah, in the scripture. Right. So can you help us differentiate? Who, who are we talking about? You, you look at the family tree of Herod and you're like, what an absolute disaster. But okay, so here's Tetrarch means three kings. Uh, and this is, it's good for us to remember that when we hear Herod in the New Testament, there's two guys that, we're, that we want to think of. There was Herod the Great. And great probably because he was such a great builder. Uh, he was a great military man. He was the son of a soldier. Um, his the Herod family is Idiomean. They're, they're descendants of, of Esau, um, but they uh, they 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 were fighting with. But they flipped and they became loyal to Rome. And so Herod the Great probably grew up in Rome and then was stationed there to be king over all of Israel. His name was King of the Jews, his title given by Rome. And that's the Herod that the wise men come and visit in Jerusalem and they send him to Bethlehem. It's that Herod uh, who, who wants to kill Jesus. And so when the Holy Family flees to Egypt, uh, they do so until that Herod dies. And then upon the death of that Herod, which I always forget, it's probably like 2 BC or something like that. Yeah. When that Herod dies, um, then uh, the angel comes and says, okay, you can come back. And they, it looks like the Holy Family was going to go back to Bethlehem, settled there right next to Jerusalem. But they heard that Archelaus, okay, so when Herod died, he split up the kingdom between, his three, or between three of his sons. Uh, so you had Herod in the north, you had Archelaus in Judea, and then you had uh, Philip in the kind of south region. And so um, and so you have these three uh, sons of Herod that are ruling, and th that's the title Tetrarch. That's what, what's going on there. So Herod, uh, Herod, the son of Herod, is up north in Galilee, also the Decapolis, also down kind of to the uh, east side of the 
of the Dead Sea, and that's where the palace was, where John was um, was beheaded. Uh, Macaba, Macaba. Oh, now I should have written down the name, but the but the ruins of the palace where John was beheaded are still there. You can mm-hmm. go and visit it. It has it overlooks the Dead Sea, and it was probably from that place that he, that Herod was running his military campaign south, um, and and maybe even east of there. So you have Herod in the north. Archelaus was ruling in Judea, but he only ruled there for about five years, and they and he was really bad at it. And so they brought him back to Rome, and they put a governorship in place. That's why Pontius Pilate was there. He was a Roman, uh, not a not any sort of Jewish king or anything like that. And uh, and so that's how the governorship became in Judea. And Philip was still around, but Herod this Herod the son of Herod. That's who we're talking about here. He had married he had married Herodias, who was like his step niece, previously married to her brother, but she left her brother to marry him. And, the, and you look at this thing and you're like, this is an absolute disaster. And you are right. And that's what, but that's the kind of thing that will get you beheaded, right? Because John looked at this and he said, this is an absolute disaster. You're married to your like step-niece brother's ex-wife? What? And, uh, and you're not supposed to preach about he's in prison sitting there. But you get a sense. This is interesting. Um, if you've seen the movie The Passion of the Christ, uh, you, they go into the palace of Herod because Jesus goes into Herod's Jerusalem palace, and it's decked all these like leopard skins and people that you can't quite tell if they're men or women, and there's all this sort of licentiousness that's happening there. Well, you get that sense, especially from this text, because here's Herod in his palace, but he's having a birthday party, hmm. this lavish birthday party, and then his wife's daughter, probably not his own daughter, but from his so this would be his niece who's he's adopted or who who knows i mean you lose track of this stuff i mean they, we should make the point that these sons of herod are lucky to be alive because he killed most of his kids i mean he had them he'd firebomb their boats and poison them and i mean ugh. uh but here he's his his stepdaughter is dancing and they're so pleased and there's so much wine flowing in this kind of decadence that he says anything you want up to half of my kingdom ask it of me so they go and plot, and they said, well, what we want is to silence this preacher hmm. of God. We want to silence John the Baptist, and so we want his head. So this, so the decadence of, of Herod uh, is on, on full display here. Hmm. Herod is a, a character here in the narrative. He seems conflicted. You, you get, or at least I get the sense that he likes John. He wants to listen to John. But but something's not right with conscience. I think you put it that way. He's got a bad conscience. What's what's going on here with Herod? Yeah. So the the text begins by saying, so Herod, who's up north in the Galilee region, etc., hears about Jesus, and he, and he thinks, so he hears about Jesus, the preaching of Jesus, and the miracles of Jesus, and he thinks John the Baptist is back from the dead, hmm. which is a wild thing to think. Yeah. Yeah. But it shows you that this probably maybe more than anywhere else in at least in this section of in Matthew and maybe even the whole Gospel of Matthew gives us insight into the bad conscience, because because Herod had killed John, and 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 when you have a bad conscience, you start to see everything in the world through the lens of that bad conscience. So there's an ancient wisdom here that sees the conscience as like a window, or your heart like a window. And the result is that if you have a if you have a clean window, then you can see how things as they really are, both inside and outside. 
But if you have a dirty window, then everything outside looks dirty, everything inside looks dirty, and you start to see a reflection of yourself whenever you try to look out the window. Uh, and so the dirtier a window, the more like a mirror. It distorts, and, the, and your own face, your own guilt is kind of overlaid into everything that you see. One of uh, Luther's favorite verses to describe a, 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 a dirty or a guilty conscience is from, it's from Moses. I think it's in Deuteronomy or, or Numbers. I, always, I sh should remember this, but he says that those who are afraid, they flee at the sound of the shaking of a leaf. Hmm. And this is how a bad conscience is, is the slightest thing sort of, it gets amplified and aggravated. So, so Herod has a bad conscience from murdering John the Baptist from silencing this preaching. And now he hears about Jesus and all he can see is John the Baptist. Mm. All it's there, you, you know, so, so that John, so that this is, it's a specter. It's haunting him. The ghosts of our own sins are, are living in, in our bad conscience. And that's exactly what you see uh, here in the, in the bad conscience of John or a uh, bad conscience of Herod. Right. So, so Herod, Herod's got this bad conscience. He's hosting his, his birthday party he makes this just rash. I mean, Herod, Herod comes off. He's, he's a bad ruler, right? I mean, he, he's just, every time I read this, it's just, a, it's a really, it's a tragedy, I think, to, to watch the way that the people of God, the rulers of this world, but, but this is the way that it has to be, right? And, and in this, we see a picture of what's going to happen to Jesus. Talk a little bit about how we see John still the forerunner of Jesus, even in his death. Yeah. John is, as far as I can tell, you can, in, you guys too can correct me if I'm wrong about this, but I think that John is the only person that Jesus lets stay dead. Any other time somebody dies in the gospel, Jesus raises them from the dead. In other words, not on my watch. Mm. <laughs> so anyone's dead, they're raised. John is the exception to that, and it almost has to be. Remember when... Um, uh, John is in prison before he's beheaded, and his disciples come to Jesus, and they, they ask, are you the one? And Jesus sends them back, tell John what you've seen. And then when they leave, Jesus preaches a sermon about John, and he says, what did you come out into the wilderness to see? A man dressed in silk clothes? If you want to see the men dressed in their silk bathrobes, you should visit the palace of Herod. <laughs> that, I mean, that's another indication of what's going on in Herod's palace. But what did you come out to see? A reed shaken by the wind? No, I tell you. Amongst all those born of women, there's none greater than John the Baptist, greatest man ever to live. Yet, he is the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than him. Now, what does that mean? It's a tricky kind of verse, but it at least means that, and I think this is what's going on, is that, is that everyone in the kingdom of heaven lived through the death and resurrection of Jesus. So even the children in the church know the death and resurrection of Jesus. But it wasn't given to John to be able to see his promises, his prophecies, his preaching fulfilled. So it was almost in a way necessary for John to die before Jesus died so that he wouldn't see these things happen. So, John, so Jesus lets John stay dead. He lets his head be cut off and remain off. He doesn't give him the resurrection. And in this, we see what's now also going to happen to Jesus. So, at, so as it went with John, so it goes with Jesus, his birth, his preaching, his ministry, and, his, and also his death. Uh, so, so now 
you you get the the real profound sense that Jesus hears about the death of John the Baptist and he knows, okay, I'm next. And because of that, he tries to withdraw to try to, you know, get his head on straight. Do you like that? Uh, he tried. No, maybe it was not a dead, dead joke. <laughs> but uh, he, as Jesus withdraws to try to, you know, wrap his head around. Okay, here's what's next for me. But he just can't. You know, he wants to be by himself. But he ends up surrounded by a crowd, fourteen thousand people or whatever. As you were talking there, the only person that Jesus lets stay dead is John. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking through the Gospels. The, only, the closest I, that I can. I can think of is you've got the the repentant thief on the cross who I suppose dies after Jesus but but there's someone in the Gospels who who dies with Jesus that Jesus doesn't raise and yet receives the promise today you'll be with me in paradise mm -hmm. and and so John precedes Jesus in everything he goes before Jesus in everything except for one thing I think and that would be the resurrection right. and and I think that's where I mean I think that's where this this text is ultimately going to bring us the hope is in the resurrection. Right. No, that's exactly right. In fact, it's it's indicated here because the disciples of Jesus, the disciples of John, go and fetch his body after the beheading. Now we don't know what happens to the head if it's put on a pike and displayed there or, or what. Um, but is what happens? Yeah, they give it on the platter. Yeah, what, she puts it on her shelf and is creepy. Yeah. But the body, the disciples get the body, and they take the body and bury it. And we want to remember that every time we see a burial, or, sorry, the burial in the scriptures, it reminds us of the hope of the resurrection. Because that's why, that's why the Jewish people and the and the Christian church is always buried, and that's to confess the resurrection. Hmm. So burial is good practice for Christians. Yeah, it's always good. It's um, you know, it's we should realize that because so we're. I think it's changing now because more and more people are, are being cremated, and so. But but for us, we've inherited the the majority tradition of burial, and so we think that burial is the normal way to treat the body, and 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 like cremation or whatever else people do, is kind of coming in as the minority opinion. But we should remember that throughout history, most people have been cremated, and that's the common kind of default practice of secular man. Of, of pagan humanity, the, you know, the Greeks and the, and the Romans and the, and the Russian and all those heathens and all the uh, Aborigine uh, religions and any, every place they all cremate. And so, and so burial was a really unique practice by the, Ju by the Jewish people and by the Christian people and by the, and by the Muslim uh, people, because those are the three people and the three religions alone that confess the resurrection. Now, maybe the Egyptians are a weird outlier in that because of their theology, but so burial has always been connected to a confession of the resurrection. So we always want to, as the as the best Christian practice, if we can if we can attain it. Talk, talk a little bit more about Herod's birthday party and just the the overall. You, you had a note here about his about birthday parties. Yeah, should we not have birthday parties? I, I was not as like, oh, you're doing a Herod thing. That's like Carrie said to me, my wife. Uh, last week, she said, are we going to do something for Valentine's Day? And I said, are we celebrating the Saints' Days now? Is that what's happening? Uh, yes, she said. It's <laughs> St. Valentine's Day. We better be celebrating that. But um, no, I thought it was interesting because if you would have asked me, when did birthday parties start? I would have thought that it would have been a pretty modern phenomenon. But 
it just it jumped off the page as, as I was looking at this text. Well, here's Herod having a birthday party. Now, I don't know if everybody had a birthday party, um, but, uh, but Herod uh, apparently did. I mean, maybe any excuse to party and celebrate right. himself. Right. Maybe a bit of his ego on display mm-hmm. here. Um, I, again, I, I t- comment a little bit on, on what Herod thinks of John and of Jesus, because I, I think you get a picture here of, of maybe a, seeker sometimes we use that term in the church today seekers and and looking and herod seems to like john to a degree but he won't go full on with repentance and faith yeah he i think he sees john as a sort of a curio like he's, he's a curiosity to him remember um jesus called herod a fox and he does have that sort of foxy sense to him like he's there's a slyness to him an interest, but it's a it's a distant kind of interest. So, like, um, it, we remember that how happy Herod was to see Jesus at last. So Herod never saw Jesus until Good Friday, to the morning that Jesus was crucified. And that morning, Jesus has he, he has this five trials and his fourth trials before Herod. And so, Jewish trial, Jewish trial, Pilate, Herod, Pilate. And so, the text tells us that Herod was excited to see Jesus because he had wanted to see him perform a miracle. And that tells us probably what we need to know about Herod, how he thought of John. He has this kind of curiosity, but almost like a, you almost have a sense that like Herod would have been, he would have loved to go to like the Ripley's Believe It or Not Museum. Like he wants to see something, he wants to be entertained, you, you know? And so, so John, well, this is kind of entertaining, is your, you know, your seriousness and everything, and that's kind of. But he, did he take it seriously? I mean, was he, was he near repentance or not? I think probably the the best clue we get to the state of his own conscience is the fact that Jesus doesn't say anything to him. So Jesus, his whole time before Herod, doesn't even open his mouth. So uh, my my guess on, and you, and you, I love your thoughts on this too, but is that Jesus is in, indicating to Herod's obsession with just being entertained and not actually taking any of this stuff seriously indicates a particular hardness of heart yeah i I would agree he he, maybe similar to jesus gets asked for a sign on multiple occasions and and we've already heard him in matthew's gospel say the only sign you're going to get is the sign of jonah the resurrection and and even that i don't think is going to do anything for herod because he hasn't believed the preaching. The sign has to be believed with the preaching. Herod hasn't believed John. He's not going to believe Jesus. As you reflect on on this text, the, the martyrdom of, of John the Baptist, this is it's on the church calendar. I can't remember. Is it in is it in August? Is that is that when it is that we observe the martyrdom of John? June twenty fourth. June twenty fourth. So this seems like a, a strange thing to to make. You know, we, we're celebrating a, a martyrdom of one of the most important characters in, in the in the scriptures. What's what's the use of this for us as Christians if we reflect upon John's martyrdom? Well, and and maybe one one thing occurred to me on Herod and then and that is he has this idea that he's above all of it. You know, like, well, okay, you're preaching, but that doesn't matter to me. I'm king. Right. He they've kind of, he's kind of insulated himself. And I think we encounter that kind of attitude a lot these days, which is uh, you know, we could go and talk to our friends about Jesus, about one gospel, about the about the glory of the resurrection or whatever, and people are just, well, that's interesting. 
but they're kind of above all of it. The secular mind does the same thing that Herod, you know, I'm, I'm entertained, I'm not troubled, I'm above it all. But eventually, if we keep preaching to that, then it will cut our heads off, you know. And, and, and that's maybe, you know, it's good, it's good for us to think about the martyrs for a couple of different reasons. But, but perhaps this, if you, if you were to just sort of pause the picture with Herod surrounded with, you know, here's his beautiful wife, you know, with all the weird circumstances and this, this party and this festivities in the, in the castle. And he has all of his lavishness. He's achieved what the, what the pleasure seeking hedonistic world would want to achieve. He's achieved it. And, and then down in the basement is the man who preached against it, who's now starving and about to have his head cut off. And you just pause the picture there and you just would put the picture in front of people and say, okay, you have, you, your life could be one of two things. You could be that guy on the throne or you could be that guy in prison. Choose. I mean, we could do the same thing with probably as Jesus stands before Pilate. Here's the man who's achieved all these things. He's well-educated. He's, he's, he he's married. He's in charge. He has a throne. People respect him. He's arrived, Pontius Pilate. And here's the man being mocked with his beard torn out and spit dripping off of his face, being rejected by everyone. You just pause the picture there and say you don't know anything about it. And you say, you got to take one of these places. Which place will you take? And the, the scriptures are constantly putting this before us, saying that the, the life of following God is the life of being in prison. The life of following God is the life of being mocked. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. And it, so it goes with John. And so the scriptures are always reminding us that our heroes are not the people who have everything that the world has gained, uh, but have lost their soul, but rather those who have the Lord's word, those who have the word of God. And so, so John dies a blessed death. Herod, if I remember right, Herod uh, spilled over and worms came out, out of his guts as he was a Caesarea, although that might be a different Herod, but uh, his nephew or something like this. But this, this, that is not an, a glorious death. But the death of John, even though it was gruesome, was a blessed death because it was a death of the faith. And we'll see John in the resurrection. Christ, Jesus, John preceded Jesus in death, and he will follow Jesus in resurrection. And so will all who are in Christ. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on Worldwide. If you're going to take a short break, but we'll be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that for over 40 years, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries with low-cost loans and resources? This is Rahema Kavuga, Synod Relations Manager of Lutheran Church Extension Fund. Because of faithful investors like you, we've been able to help church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations. To learn how you can get involved, call 800-843-8233. Hi, I'm Pastor Mark Hawkinson, host of Moments of Assurance. Jesus said, if anyone enters by me, he shall be saved. You can help us continue to get that message out around the globe while there's still time. 
One way is to become a church or organization of the week. For a gift of just $595, your church will receive 35 30-second announcements during the week of your choice, identifying your church as well as upcoming events and happenings. And your pastor or a representative from your church, they may record those announcements or we can produce them ourselves either way. In addition, your pastor or representative will have the opportunity to be on one of KFUO's programs. It's a wonderful way to expand your mission outreach and to help KFUO Radio to do the same. For further information, call me, Mark, at 314-996-1520 or mark.hawkinson at kfuo.org. On the next Law and Gospel broadcast, which is an Open Mic Friday, we will have the opportunity to answer your theological questions and maybe even talk more about the book, And God, What About? Questions by students at a university answered very well by James Cumming and Hans Moll. Join us for the next broadcast. Listen to Law and Gospel weekday mornings beginning at 9.30 on KFUO. Welcome back to Sharp Iron on this Friday, February 21st. We're looking at Matthew chapter 14, verses 1 through 21 with Pastor Brian Wolfmiller of St. Paul Lutheran Church and Jesus Death Church in Austin, Texas. Pastor Wolfmiller, prior to the break, you were talking about martyrs. Someone, someone should write a book about yeah, martyrs. Right? Uh, it's, <laughs> we do, I, the, I tell a few martyr stories in the, in the book of Martyr's Faith for a uh, uh, faithless world. Um, because, again, it has to do with the idea of heroes. And I remember this idea. Someone told me that if you if you know who someone's heroes are, then you know anything you need to know about them because we're chasing after our heroes. And the Christians, the, the Christian heroes have always been the martyrs. Not the, And you would just say, well, what, are, okay, what kind of person that, that I want to be? The, the, I mean, this is basic sort of. Christian or just human question. I, do I want to be a person that has, what, what do I define as success? What do I define as the good life? And America and the American dream puts before us a picture of the good life. Um, the media would put before us a picture of the good life. Great literature would put before us in different ways, the picture of the good life, but the March constant picture of the, of the good life. Uh, the one who has, who has been able to, without fear, stand and be accused and even give their life for the faith. And it's good for us to remember that. I think it's something that we've lost um, in in recent days. And so I think maybe more than ever, it's going to be good for the church's memory to be jogged on who our real heroes are. And John the Baptist is certainly one of them. As the text moves forward here in Matthew 14, I think you, you mentioned there's a, there's a bit of a, a connection from verse 1 to 13. You've got Herod hearing, and then you have Jesus hearing. And Jesus hears, and he he withdraws. Is he is he running away? How's the how's the text moving now from sure. the flashback back to real time? Yeah. So so it kind of um, that's right. So Herod hears of Jesus. It's it's kind of interesting that Jesus and Herod and the crowds are reacting to the things that they hear, and um, so they're paying attention to the news. And it actually determines what, what they're actually doing and thinking and feeling. So Herod hears the news about Jesus and his, and his troubled conscience is stirred up because he says, oh, it's John the Baptist raised from the dead, which also shows us that, that the troubled conscience is the troubled conscience is very happy with superstition and 
kind of specters and and everything the go the 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 um what what do we call that the fairies live the fairies live in a troubled conscience you can believe all sorts of crazy stuff if you have a troubled enough conscience so herod hears about that and then jesus hears about the death of john the baptist and he reacts to it and he withdraws to be with himself he goes in a boat to a desolate place by himself um so jesus is, he 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 hears about the death of john and and perhaps we can speculate on why he wants to be by himself, perhaps just to mourn, perhaps to consider what this means for his own future, perhaps to Jesus all the time when he's looking for the desolate place is looking for that for the purpose of prayer. And so there's things that are compelling Jesus to go on the boat and get out of get out of the city, get out of the crowd. And yet the crowd hears about Jesus getting on the boat to be by himself. And so they go and, and track him down. And there's a pattern that will emerge in the Gospels, I think is very intriguing to, to see, and that is that uh, Jesus will intend one thing, and, and the crowds or the people who are hurting or sick will need something else. And so what happens? I mean, if you just, okay, so you have these first two verses, Jesus wants to be by himself, and the crowds want to be with Jesus. So who gets their way? It's not Jesus. <laughs> he doesn't say, guys, guys, I'm just give me a couple of minutes. I mean, he wants to be by himself. And as far as I can tell, this is the biggest crowd that Jesus ever has surrounding him. 5,000 men, it says, not including the women and the children. And so at the very time when Jesus wants to be most alone is the time when he has the biggest crowd around him and nothing else to distract them. I mean, they're out in the sticks. They're so in Warda. yeah, so even <laughs> further out in the sticks than Warda, I mean they're in the they're in the they don't there's no homes there's no it's just they're in the desert. Jesus went to the to the least likely he went to a place where nobody else would want to go, but this is how like Jesus this will happen in other places like Jesus will go into a city and he'll want to preach, but the crowds will bring him all the sick and all the hurting. And what ends up happening is Jesus doesn't preach, but he heals them. So he's, he's, he's compelled. So Jesus has, here's what I think I would like to do, but he's simply compelled by the needs of the people that are in front of them. And he just can't, he just can't help himself from overflowing with compassion. Well, and that's the key word here is that Jesus has his, his miracle that he performs here comes out of his compassion for the crowd. That's a pretty key term when it comes to Jesus in the Gospels. That's right. The splagidzomai, which mm. it means like the, the, it, it, uh, we have a phrase that it probably literally translates as to spill your guts. But when we say you spill your guts, we're just talking about how you you just say everything that's on your mind or whatever. But this is the idea of this kind of you, you, you're, just, you're pouring out your innards. Ugh. And it's used in the gospel only of Jesus and of the of the father in the parable of the prodigal son. That's the only other place that it's used, not directly of Jesus, but that's that's describing Jesus as well. So Jesus looks at the crowd and he has compassion on them. And so and he starts healing the sick. So what does Jesus want to do? He wants to be by himself praying. And what does he end up doing? He ends up healing all these people. And that was exhausting for Jesus. We have to remember that there was times when Jesus would stay up all night healing the sick. And it's not like, I mean, we, we know that Jesus is God in the flesh, but we have to make sure that we don't equate that to Superman. You know, I mean, 
Jesus was tired after this stuff. I mean, it was hard, hard work for him. It was exhausting. And yet he's pleased to be compelled. We think of, you know, there's some scene in some Superman movie where a guy shoots him in the eye and the bullet like bounces off of his eye, which is a cool scene. But we have to remember that if you would shoot Jesus in the eye, it would go through his head. I mean, if you nail Jesus on the hand, it goes and sticks him to the cross. So Jesus, the, the unity of the divinity and the humanity in Jesus, does, it does not diminish his humanity, his mortality. And so he wants to be by himself, but here comes 5,000 sick people, hungry people, and he's going to, all right, let's take care of them because he loves them so much. And it, how, how beautiful it is to see that. So Jesus, as a man, then, is getting tired. He's, he's exhausted after a long day. And, and all on top of that, the emotional you know, stress of knowing that his, his dear friend, his, his relative, John, has just died. Imagine his disciples would have noticed this, right? I mean, and, and these are his closest friends. They see his exhaustion, his, his tire, tiredness. They come to him. And, and I think we're, we're quick to, to criticize them, but they would have seen their master very tired, they want him to get rest. Yeah. What, yeah. what do they come to Jesus with? This is a desolate place, they say. They came to him. It's, a, it's interesting to think that the disciples were probably, you know, the disciples, it seems like they had a little conversation in and amongst themselves before they would go and talk to Jesus just to make sure they're on the same page. Right. <laughs> so they're like, they're watching all these things happen. And then, okay, let's, guys, we're going to go to, so it says the disciples went. So they've got this plotted and they say, it's a desolate place. The day is over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages to buy food for themselves. So they see, okay, that's enough, Jesus. Time to close up shop. You know, you know, no more healings. No more. Come back tomorrow. No more. They're trying to close the door. And then Jesus says, and and this is really quite something because we're going to see that the second feeding miracle, the feeding of the four thousand, is going to follow a same pattern. Jesus is now going to take this occasion, not only to bless the people, but to train his disciples. So, so Jesus says, verse 16, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. And the disciples look at themselves and said, what well, we have, we've got five loaves. We've got two fish. We're, we're worried that Peter's probably going to eat it all. You know, I don't even think there's enough for us, you know. And then Jesus says, bring them here to me. And he orders them and he, and then he orchestrates the feeding of the 5,000, which is a, which is a keystone miracle. It is. Apart from the resurrection, again, I can be corrected on this, but I think apart from the miracle that is in all four Gospels. And so um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are all going to give this to us as a, as a keystone miracle that Jesus uh, does. He has them sit down in groups, and he, has, he takes the bread, and he breaks it, and he gives thanks. And he has the disciples start to distribute it, and everyone eats and eats and eats until they're full, until they're satisfied. And and then and then you uh, and and then you they collect the crumbs and there's more left over than there was to start with. We've got a question from our audience here. Pastor Dustin Beck, a regular guest on Sharper Iron, is with us. Pastor Beck, what what would you like to ask? I'm just here for the T-shirt. Yeah, you're, no, you're just about to get it. You're the only question. Just so just far. kidding. Uh, so, uh, pastors, if y'all would comment just on the significance of the fact that this is a miracle that's done by the hands of the disciples. Right. This is not I mean, you mentioned Jesus is the one that that blesses the food. He's the one that orchestrates it. 
but it's done by the hands of the disciples. It's a delegated miracle. Is there, is there something of significance to that? Um, that was just something that stood out to me as Jesus very emphatically says, you give them something to eat, hmm. right? So it's, is there something to that? Pastor Wolfman? Well, yeah, it's, it's the, I mean, this becomes a, right? And so the disciples are, are being trained here in their office. I mean, when Jesus says, um, uh, we should hear echoes from this text when Jesus says to Peter at the end of John, feed my sheep. So that the office of pastor is going to be an office of feeding, but it's a, it's a distribution that comes from Jesus. So, no, that's exactly right. We've got another question. Please, sir. Paul from beautiful Savior Lutheran Church, LCMS, Austin. I wonder, uh, talking about the compassion of Jesus, do the good works of the new man, the new Adam, come from that compassion of Jesus? And insofar as we participate in those good works from our compassion for our neighbor. So how does the, how does the compassion of Jesus flow then through the disciples? And through us okay. in the new man. Pastor Wolfman, how does that, how does that happen? Sure. I think you know, so. Paul will write in Philippians. He says, "Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Though he was in the form of God, he didn't consider equality with God as something to be grasped, but humbled himself. So, so that these things which mark Jesus, his which mark his own mind and his own heart, are now growing in us also." Um, there's a theme that runs through Luther's writings that I'm trying to track down now, and it has to do with seeing the world through the eyes of Jesus. So I don't know how my fleshly eyes would have looked at this crowd of 5,000 and, you know, seen them, but Jesus looks at them and has compassion on them. And as the Holy Spirit is working in us, then we also want to look at the world with these, with the same compassion. But we want to realize though, that that while we do good works to serve our neighbor, we, what can't be diminished is that Jesus does more good works to serve our neighbor. So while we are called in this world to love one another, we're also called in this world to not only be loved by Jesus, but to know that Jesus loves our neighbor as well. So there's been times when I've been talking with well, you know, people who, especially parents who are trying to love their kids and their kids have all sorts of trouble going on. Maybe they've left the church or whatever. And we want to say, hey, you love your children. You have compassion for your children. You're caring for your children. But Jesus loves them. If you can imagine it, Jesus loves them even more than you love them. Jesus has compassion on them even more than, than you have compassion on them. So, so I think that we, it, this is right, that we want to look with the eyes of Jesus and have compassion recognize that the most glorious thing in our life is being cared for by Jesus and that he also is caring for our neighbors. The, the, the compassion that Jesus has is not shared by the disciples in this text at first. They, they look at the crowd as that which needs to be dismissed away from Jesus so that, that he can rest. And it's only when and he responds in compassion and speaks with compassion. And then as Pastor Beck brought out, he gives them something to give to the crowd. It's the gift of Jesus that they are handing out. And there's the compassion. It's not coming from themselves. It's purely that gift of, of our Lord. I remember uh, it was a relative of mine and um, they don't go to church and they were, and we were just sitting talking and they said, it's gotta be hard to be a pastor because you gotta go and see people who are hurting and struggling and you gotta make them feel better. 
<laughs> which is uh, the, is so, everyone here feeling better because yeah, Pastor Wolf Miller is here? Yes. Yeah, sure. <laughs> and I said, and I said, well, you know, I said, I, I can, I can see what you're saying because, like, imagine being a nurse in the hospital, and your job is to make the patients feel better, but you don't have any medicine. <laughs> I mean, that would be a tough job. But if you have the right medicine, and you're just going in and giving the right medicine, they feel better, not because of of your ministry of the right medicine. And this is what, you know, this is what, what the disciples are being trained to. They're, they don't, they are being the distributors of, of God's mercy and they're giving the right medicine. And that's where the, that's where the power and the strength is. One of the features of, of this text, as you said, it is the only miracle other than the resurrection that's in all four gospels. Is that right? I think oh, you're right. Oh, I'm, I'm, right. I'm pretty sure you're right on that. That was not what we I was got, We have fact taught. checkers I've, I've got here in the audience here. The, so they're nodding. Okay, good. Good. We survived the fact check. So this is talk a little about the Old Testament background. Yeah, yeah. This yeah. is obviously a significant miracle. Give us the Old Testament background. It's here. really quite there's two I mean, this is a major theme of being fed in the wilderness. I mean, boy. So it should I think there's two at least two major things that come to mind. Number one is the wandering in the wilderness and the provision of the manna. And this becomes explicit in the feeding of the 5,000 in the Gospel of John. So in the Gospel of John, it gives us the feeding of the 5,000, and then Jesus crosses back over the sea. Then they come and find him, and then Jesus preaches about manna. I'm, I'm the manna that came down in the wilderness and so forth. So, um, so just as God provided for his people in the wilderness under Moses, so now he is showing that um, provision as well. It also brings to mind, and Mark, I think even more explicitly than Matthew, is going to bring out the connection between the feeding of the 5,000 and Psalm 23, where Jesus, where God is the good shepherd who leads us beside the still waters. Uh, he, he feeds us, he gives us the, the grass to eat. In, in Mark, it says, he made them sit down in the green grass. And so it has that echoes of the Lord's providing for us everything that we need. And, and we shouldn't forget this. I mean, the, just the basic, the, the, the kind of the moral of the text, there's a lot going on in the text, but the basic moral of the text is that Jesus will feed us. Luther, Luther says, he preaches on this text, and he says, we always want to spiritualize it and make it about spiritual gifts. He says, we just should remember that no Christian ever starved to death. Uh, the Lord gives us what we need. He, he provides not only for the eternal life, but he provides also for our earthly life. And, and so we don't want to, you know, we have this temptation to, to really spiritualize it, but it's just good for us to remember that, that Jesus also gives us daily bread. We've got another question here from the audience. Mrs. Ruth Meyer, one of the featured authors here at Faith Lutheran High School's Writers Roundup later. Mrs. Meyer. So you were talking about the manna in the wilderness and everything. Um, is there a tie-in, and this, I risk spiritualizing this maybe too much, as you just said, is there any kind of tie-in here with the bread to the Lord's Supper? That's where I wanted to go next. How do, because I think any time we see Jesus eating in the Gospels and right. feeding particularly, we're going to draw a connection, and, and here particularly. So, so draw some of those connections between this meal and the Lord's Supper later. Sure. So this is this happens in the, so the uh, some people want to make a connection here that Jesus takes the bread, he breaks it, he gives thanks, and he does the same thing at the Last Supper. But it seems like that's he does that every time they eat. So I don't want to I don't want to make that too tight of a connection. Where the connection does come in is that when Jesus is explaining the miracle in John chapter six, 
he'll use language like, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part of me. And, uh, and there's been a, an old debate in the church about, does that refer to the Lord's Supper? Uh, yes or no. We, probably, when Jesus is explaining this text, he wants, to, he, he wants this feeding of the 5,000 to be a demonstration of the miracle of the incarnation so that he is the bread from heaven. Normal bread comes from the earth, but there's a bread that falls out of heaven, and this is how, how Jesus is. He's not born in the normal way. He, he, he is in eternity with the Father, and now he comes down. Uh, and we, when we eat his flesh, we are confessing that he is, in fact, God in the flesh. Unfold that in his epistle when he says, Antichrist is the one who denies that God came in the flesh. So, so it seems like the the picture being painted here by the manna and by the and by the bread in the wilderness is a picture of the incarnation, which we participate in in the supper. So the body and the blood that we eat and drink in the supper is the body and blood that Jesus assumed from the Virgin Mary that he took up and and united to his divine nature in the incarnation. So I I don't so my own thinking on this is that it's it's not a direct connection to the Lord's Supper, but that that we we John six we eat and drink the flesh and blood of Jesus when we believe in Him, and that is perhaps most clearly articulated when we believe the words that He speaks to us in the Lord's Supper: "Take and eat. This is My body. This is My blood." So that that I'm wandering around the question, but I that, that I hope that gets us closest. We got about four minutes left here in the morning, Pastor Wolf Miller. One one more thought on on the training of the disciples that's happening here in this text. You had a note about that. What are, what are we seeing Jesus train his disciples here? Yeah, well, Pastor Beck helped with this point too. Is that Jesus is not just saying, "Okay, eat all this food," but rather, "Hey, disciples, I want you." And they wonder how how are we supposed to do it? And Jesus says, "Well, if I say to do it, then it can be done." Um, my word has the strength to do these things. But then especially what happens is it's not, it's just a few maybe weeks or maybe months later that G G Jesus and the disciples are crossing the Sea of Galilee and, and he says, beware of the leaven of the scribes and the Pharisees. And this is after the feeding of the 4,000 and they think, oh, we don't have enough bread. <laughs> and so Jesus is, is, is putting them almost on purpose in these situations where they do not have the resources to provide for the people's needs and the people's needs are provided for. And so Jesus is, Jesus has his disciples in school to learn, to learn who he is and to learn what he intends to do in his church. And, uh, and, and we should remember this. I mean, we should remember the feeding of the 5,000 because we're always trying to measure our own resources, right? What, what do we have? So you got five loaves, you got, you got two fish, or later on where there's 4,000 people, and you've got, what, a dozen or seven, 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 seven loaves. And, and, and so it just doesn't match. The resources simply don't match. And yet the Lord uh, provides for his people according to his word and his, and his compassion. As, as we look to wrap things up here this morning, Pastor Wolf Miller, give us a, a summary. Draw these texts together for us in our lives as Christians. You would say, okay, we, we see with these 5,000 people, we say, boy, Jesus really had compassion on them and cared for them. And then you look at John the Baptist neglected over in prison and getting his head chopped off, and you say, boy, it doesn't look like Jesus loved John. 
mean, where was the compassion for John? But the compassion of Jesus sometimes looks like letting you sit in prison and be beheaded. <laughs> sometimes it looks like providing you a miraculous meal. Uh, but the Lord knows best. In fact, he's got us all in school. I mean, it's it's one-on-one -on -one training. And he's teaching us his mercy. He's teaching us his love. He's teaching us to have courage in the face of suffering. He's teaching us uh, that he, that his death in our place, bearing our sins, uh, gives us all that we need for this life and the life to come. Je Jesus is the good shepherd who provides for the sheep, and chiefly, he provides for the sheep by laying down his own life. So it's an astonishing thing. I mean, all through the scriptures and here even, uh, the Lord is our shepherd. But Jesus, when he takes up that title, he says, I'm the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. So Jesus is the shepherd who becomes the slaughtered lamb so that we might feast on his goodness. And, and that is what we need, whether we're in the wilderness starving or in prison uh, wasting away or in Warda for a Lutheran writer's roundup, no matter where the Lord has us, if we have Jesus, we have all that we need. Pastor Brian Wolfmuller is the pastor at St. Paul Lutheran Church and Jesus Death Lutheran Church in Austin, Texas, helping us this morning with Matthew chapter 14, verses 1 through 21. Pastor Wolfmuller, thanks for coming out today. Oh, God be praised. My pleasure. Thank you. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple. Go ahead. It's all right. Yeah. Thank you for joining us live this morning, everyone here in Warda, Texas. We're at Faith Lutheran High School. The Writers' Roundup is coming up later. We're going to have a few of those authors here on the Coffee Hour the next more next program. They're, they're right here with me, so please stick around for that. I'm your host of Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithfield, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again next week.